Today's a perfect day, so spend it with me. The sun is high, the wheel of time, let it burn. There's not a moment to waste. Let's walk or cycle these lanes. I wish today would never end. Today's the perfect day to be with a friend. The world can The sun is high, the wheel of time.
Where did I put those years? I swear I had them here just now in the palm of my hand. I was going to give them to you with a note and a card. I thought I'd given you my word. I must have put them down without thinking like a set of keys, like the pen with which I was writing that in the twinkling of an eye has gone. All those words unwritten, the truths unsaid, the doors I can't unlock, the hours unshared, the tears unshed, lost to the tyranny of the clock. Welcome again to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard and that was the Downs Braid Association. And today from their new album, Halison Hymns, I've got the huge pleasure to welcome keyboard maestro Jeff Downs here today, who's famous for so much work across the last 40 years with the likes of Buggles, Asia, Yes, and of course the Downs Braid Association, plus much more. And we'll be covering a range of that material today. Welcome, Jeff. How are you? All right. Even better now you're here. Yeah. Great. So the first track that we play today is today from your forthcoming album, Halos and Hymns. It seems a very positive and anthemic song, which against you know the hardship and troubling times that we've got today feels something that we all need. Yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, a level of optimism is something that we've got to try and keep uh, on our minds at this moment in time. Certainly, I think that um, both Chris and I kind of related to what we're experiencing at the moment. And and I think that we wanted to put something together that was deep and meaningful in some respects, but also has a positivity. That track in particular has that amphemic, almost Beatlesque feel to it that anyone, whatever their walk of life, can listen to it and enjoy. Yeah, I don't think it's uh, it's sort of specific to any demographic, really. I think that um, 
we just come up with the stuff and uh, and hopefully people like it. But yeah, I think it's uh, you know from out of all four albums, I think this one is particularly um, significant to you know the way that Chris and I work together. You come from different musical backgrounds and it's a really interesting combination the different musical styles that you you bring together in in this yeah i think that uh you know i, I was originally i was from what you could say a pop background yeah obviously with the buggles but you know and i was a session guy and we used to play on top of the pops with all sorts of people but it's something that you know it's almost gone full circle because i know that chris is a big you know he loves prog music and he loves the old vinyl recordings and that sort of stuff. So it's something I think that we both had in mind that we wanted to do something that was not just a collection of songs that had more of a continuity. I suppose, you know, you think of the Beatles' White Album, you know, I'm not saying that it's going to sell as many as that, but the, the whole idea of that was, you know, it, it had a form, it, had a, it was conceived as a whole rather than it just being a group of songs. And so I think that's what we really tried to achieve on this album was to get that across and, uh, you know, as I say, have that continuity. Listening across the songs, it does have an optimistic note. Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, some of the, the titles are very, very optimistic. Love Among the Ruins and things like that. You know, it's, it's out of, you know, all of what we've experienced, I suppose, in the last year or so. It does bring, hopefully, bring all that together and... Uh, does give that sense of optimism. The conch shell held to an itchy ear, a touchstone to a myriad of uplifting whispers, forbearers, predecessors, ancestors, antecedents, elusive gods and dead heroes jostle in a chirpathon, their wisdoms in a soothe of song. The evening air 
And whether it's today, Love Among the Ruins, um, you've got narration there as well, which kind of links things. Yeah, I think that, that that's quite an important part of it in some respects because it gives, you know, the dialogue gives some release from the, from the music as well and it sort of counteracts, rather than being, you know, individual songs, it gives us that flow. And uh, I think I think it's a, a nice addition for, for the album. So we did it on the last album as well, but I think it's more predominant on this one. And um, uh, I think Barney's voice and the way that he projects some of the messages that, in the music, you know, I think it's all it all works very well together. And it, it kind of does set it apart as an album, as opposed to what is, is often typical today, is just where groups or artists just release standalone singles and then collect things together. This does feel like a, a whole. Yeah, well, you know, Chris and I are big, big vinyl lovers. And, um, uh, and so I think that we always have that in the back of our minds that, you know, it's a great to, not, not just the, the music, but the, the album sleeve as well. Uh, it certainly have that concept of, of it being more of a, a statement and an item rather than it being, as you said, just... You know, a group of cherry pick songs. It may be a lot more relevant for the, for you know what what's happened in the last year is that yeah. people are bound in their houses and uh, you know it's a good opportunity to to listen to things as a whole rather than say well I'm just dashing off you know I'll, I'll download that one track and see what happens. Yeah. I think this gives people the opportunity to you know in, not indulge in the music and and listen to it as a whole rather than uh, just sort of something that lump in with a lot of other stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So our next song is is also Downs Braid Association Dreaming of England from the uh, Suburban Ghosts album. Was that a reflection of you being geographically, was Chris originally for much of this time in, in America and, and were you in the UK? How, how did that sort of work? Well, I think we uh, originally came up with that song then about early on and I think that it was very much in Chris's mind because he just moved to uh, LA at the time and I think one of the reasons why we got on very well together was because we had that sort of Englishness in the music you know that you know those sort of northern sentiments and uh, being on the beach and Bivington yeah. or some, something like that you know that was uh, so I think when he was over there that was this he felt that Dream of England was quite relevant to to, to the way he was thinking at the time, even though he was doing very well there and, and enjoying it, I'm sure. But yeah, you know, so quite nostalgic look at uh, the, the way that we work together. For much of your albums, they've got those British or English references in in the lyrics as well. Yeah, I think that's quite important. I think that uh, you know that that's something that we really do share is the fact that. You know, we can't deny that we are where we come from. We can't hide our roots. And uh, certainly, you know, from my standpoint, uh, my influences are very much in that. You know, my dad was a church organist. So, yeah. you know, I, I got I grew up singing anthems and that sort of thing. And I think that's something that's uh, that stayed with me throughout my career. Even going, you know, if you look at the the uh, stuff that I wrote with John Wetton, you know, the, the Asian stuff. Yeah. There's the very anthemic choruses, you know, the way that we put all the harmonies together are very, um, uh, I think it's sort of peculiar to the English writers, you know, that they have that, that influence. Yeah. And so it's something that Chris and I both feel very strongly about. Summer, 
forever Pacific coast in your mind Dreaming of England All of the ones left behind London in winter, kids in the park, frost on the school gates, home after dark, dreaming of England. Who oh, life goes on without you?
touched on on your roots. You were launched in certainly in the public sphere with Buggles and, and obviously video killed the radio star, just one of the biggest hits ever, really. You and Trevor kind of mainly, a, was it a studio project originally? You didn't have plans to be a traditional group? Yeah, pretty much so. I think we, we always used to have this um, gag that we said to each other, you know, that we'll, we'll, we'll never be as big as the Buggles, you know, it was like the Beatles. It was sort of like a, a studio version of the Beatles, you know, almost uh, created in a laboratory, you know, rather than it ever being concept of a live band. The fact that we have done, in more recent times, we've done gigs together, but we never really intended to be that, I think. And uh, and so we, that's one of the reasons why we simulated all these, you know, sort of quasi-orchestral sounds and, you know, electronic stuff that, in, in many respects, it, it had a kind of, you know, a sort of artificial intelligence to it, you know. And yeah. that was really the whole idea behind the buggles with these two guys just making these noises in the studio. But uh, it was always something that I think we wanted to do. We we have, as I say, we have done a few gigs with the Buggles, but it was always considered, I think, initially as a a studio concept. I've heard that the demo of Video Killed the Radio Star and and Buggles material was knocked back by record companies at the time. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I think we, uh, we did a demo of the song. Trevor and I took it round to just about every record label in London, which is what you used to have to do in those days. You know, you'd go to the A&R guys, and then you'd sit there and he'd put the, the cassette on or the tape or whatever it was you had, uh, and he'd sit and go, yeah, that's okay, but, you know, it's not for us. It's not for our label. And so we had this, I suppose, it was it was something we, we were putting up with, but uh, we're fortunate we got a copy of it to Island Records. And Chris Blackwell, who was the head of Island uh, guru yeah. of uh, so many bands that, that he signed to that great label uh, and we were lucky to get signed by him effectively so i think that really started us on the road to um, both of our careers which have obviously moved in different directions over the years but uh, you know it's a great way to open the door for us
it doesn't seem that much of a span of time before this video killed the radio star was topping the charts to the time period that there was kind of that um, bringing together of, of Buggles and, and Yes. Yeah, the Yeggles, they called it at the time. Uh, <laughs> this is uh, quite funny, I suppose. Yeah, it was, uh, it, it was a bit more of a natural transition than I think a lot of people gave us credit for because we were being managed by the same management company at the time, at the same time as Yes. And I think both Chris, Alan and, and uh, Steve really liked the Age of Plastic album that we'd done. And uh, we got talking to them in the office one day and they said, you know, if you've got any songs for us, but there's only three of us working on together at the moment because uh, John Anderson and Rick Wakeman had gone off to do other things at that point. So it was uh, something that we just thought, well, yeah, well, we've got a couple of songs. So we took them in there and we started working together. And, you know, in, in some kind of way, we just sort of morphed into, yes, it was not so much, you know, you've got the job. It was just, uh, just a natural progression, really. When you look at the album drama and, and tracks like Tempest Fugit, it pointed the way to where the future of progressive rock, you know, into the 80s, which is a, a bit more of a direct sound, you know, as opposed to just covering the same ground that bands were doing, say, in the early 70s. So it's actually kind of a bit more of a natural synergy, really. Well, I think for Yes, you know, they, they'd had such a great career in the 70s and been groundbreaking with all these great big, long, uh, extravagant songs and uh, arrangements and, and that kind of thing. You know, and, and obviously bands like ELP and King Crimson kind of finished at that era, you know, the end of the 70s at that time. So I think what it did with Yes was it, it really took it into, you know, it fired it into the 80s, which was, you know, if you think about the actual content of the songs on drama, it was very much yeah. a different aspect to what Yes had been before, you know, these sort of ethereal, pastoral, bucolic imagery uh, all of a sudden, you know, we were talking about pylons and, uh, you know, very technological developments and that sort of thing. So it took that into another dimension, I think. And even though some people thought that, well, you know, there's no way we should have been in Yes, it did open up, I think, Yes to a whole chapter moving into the 80s. Yeah, because many of Yes's contemporaries just didn't make it into the 80s, whereas as Yes, you entered commercial success, but... I've heard that you, you went on tour in the US and, you know, some of the fans just didn't take to the, the changes. Was that kind of one of the reasons why, at the time, that incarnation of Yes didn't continue? It wasn't so bad in America, actually, because they right. you know, they were all stoned anyway. And, you know, <laughs> and we were on this round stage in the middle of these uh, arenas. So they sort of, you know, they were just happy to hear the music, I think, a lot of the time. I mean, right. they, I mean the diehards, obviously. Yeah couldn't really take, you know, not so much from my standpoint, but I couldn't really, you know, John Anderson had been the, you know, the god, the singer of Yes for, uh, from the beginning. I think that it was a tough role for Trevor to take on because they, they didn't really accept that, some of them, but others did, you know. I think that the album did quite well in terms of commercial success. But I think it was more when we came to the UK that we really got a bit of flack, you know, because... Uh, we were in just the smaller theatres and stuff like that, and uh, I think uh, it rankled with uh, you know the the big yes sort of fan base. Yeah, I think that's one of the reasons why it why it, uh, it it kind of only really went as far as that. But of course, it 
what came out of that well, was any good stuff, really, because, you know, I went on to be in Asia with Steve and, yeah. you know, Trevor went on to produce 90125, so it wasn't all, all bad, you know.
so that basically enabled you and Trevor to go back to the sort of Buggles format and start work on the second album Adventures in Modern Recording. And we have one of the singles off that, Lenny. But I'm not clear about your involvement on that record because I think you, you were on it, but I'm not sure in terms of that recording process, the span of time that you were on that. Well, I think once the, that sort of chapter of Yes had folded at the end of that UK tour, which was at the end of 1980, I think Trevor and I were, were still signed to Island Records to do another Buggles album. So we, we kind of headed back into the studio and started working on, uh, on Adventure Modern Recording. It was sort of during that that, you know, I got the, uh, the nod from Steve and, and John Wett and Carl to see if I was interested in joining them. So, you know, it was a, an opportunity too good to turn down, really. So, um, so I sort of let Trevor get on with that himself and then I, I moved into uh, Falling Asia. So much of that album had your songwriting on in terms of uh, you and Trevor. You played on some of the material, but basically Trevor basically did the bulk of the the recording process for, for that Buggles album. Yeah, I think we had... Uh, if, if Trevor finished it off, I think that, that we'd... We did a, a quite a lot of demos for that album, you know. It's uh, and some of them are, you know, some of them are on there. But as I say, it was it was kind of unfinished business really for me at the time. And uh, Ireland were not really that keen on it because, yeah, they were looking for another video kill the radio star, of course. And by that time, we had all that experience. And yes, so you know, it sort of affected our writing that we, were, you know, we were aiming for a much more. Um, progressive pop kind of uh, direction and so that didn't really sit too well with Ireland so I think at that point we'd lost you know because we'd taken that year out with yes the whole Buggles thing had really lost quite a lot of steam in terms of uh, uh, you know where, where we were at.
Asia was the perfect vehicle, that new progressive sound in the 80s, which was sort of a rock edge, but still um, having that sort of progressive core. We talked about that, how Yes moved the sound on, but Asia, the timing felt right. Yeah, I think we obviously we were before, you know, we came out before the 90125 album. I think we came out the year before. Yeah. So we'd actually made that transition. And, and a lot of it was down to the other guys I was with as well. John, Carl and Steve who come from, they've been part of that 70s era. You know, I hadn't really been part of that. And obviously Steve was Yes and Carl with ELP, John with UK and uh, uh, King Crimson. So, mm. you know, those guys, they were, they were kind of old school in that respect. And I think that one of the things that they were maybe drawn to me more was because I'd got the, uh, the, the 80s um, feeling in, in me, you know, and, uh, and maybe that's what, you know, I brought to the table in that. And then they, they all wanted to try something different. I think, you know, they'd done the, they'd done the 70s and uh, and I think Asia was a result of that, that, you know, they wanted to do something that was more current, maybe less convoluted. They'd done all the sides of albums, the entire tracks and that sort of thing. And and I think, you know, a lot of it was down to the fact that, you know, I really started to have a great writing relationship with John and, and we, um, you know, we started to come up with these more, you know, as you say, a progressive core, but the, the, the concept was more melodic, it was more direct, I think, and so that's how... Uh, that's how we approach the first Asia album. Only time will tell. Tell is a you know a great example of of your your partnership with with John and comparing the seventies with the eighties. You packing in many more ideas into a shorter amount of time. I think that was it. It was a sort of condensed version, really. You know, you look at the seventies and people say, "Oh, those big progressive bands." They still had that commercial element in there. You know, bands like the ELP. You know. They had big songs like Lucky Man, Celebi. You know, they, they weren't, you know, aside from all the wonderful arrangements that they had on top of that, you know, these were basically rock songs in the middle of this, you know, set in the middle of this progressive setting. You know, even Yes, you know, came up with latterly uh, 90125 was out of Lonely Heart. So there's not that much differential, really, I don't think, that, you know, even John's stuff that he did with King Crimson, like Book of Saturday. These were very much songs. They weren't just a bunch of guys playing a thousand notes a second, you know. And, you know, it's a sort of how people sometimes tend to view progressive music. The core of a lot of these writers was 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 in, in the song thing, and I think that that's one of the reasons why I hit it off so well with John was that we were the song was the thing that came first. Everything else was just uh, additions, and production was an addition, you know. The playing was an addition, but the core of the whole thing was to get the song right. To find that you planned it all along 
So by the mid-80s, um, after a series of successful albums in, in Asia, you were invited to basically produce uh, the GTR project. Steve Howe, Steve Hackett. Yeah, I mean, that was... Uh, I think that they felt that because they were both very, very high-profile guitarists in their own right, it was probably a wise idea to get someone in that was not a guitarist, you know, because... Uh, me being a keyboard player and I just started to get into production at that point 
uh, as you know, as a producer, I think that uh, they thought it was a good idea. Yeah, yeah it's a great album to make. I mean, the you know, still stands up. I think as a you know a good eighties rock album, and uh, I was very fortunate that it, it helped to continue my relationship with Steve, which goes on today, and uh, uh, and I got to know Steve Hackett very well through that, and he's a fantastic music, musician guitarist. So. I'm very lucky to be working with these kind of people. And The Hunter off that album, that's one of your tracks? Yeah, that's one that I presented. It's actually, uh, uh, I, I did a demo of it with the singer of, of, of GTR, Max Bacon. Uh, and it was just something that I was in the studio one day and I thought, this isn't a bad idea. And, uh, and so I put down a very uh, rough backing track of it. And then I got Max to come and sing it. And this was all all. Before really, I you know before we started to do GTR proper, and uh, uh, I, I put this track on the table, and GTR were then being signed to Arista Records, and I sat in a, in a hotel room with Clive Davis, who's the head of Arista Records, and I said, "I oh, well, I uh, this is a song that I just put together with the singer, and uh, you know probably be a good track to have on the album," and. Uh, and he went, ah, that's great, man, that's fantastic. Yeah, we'll sign them now, you know. So I think it really helped get them over the line in terms of, um, you know, of actually getting the deal for them and getting them signed to a major label in America.
And it'd be good to cover your partnership more with, with John Wetton, which was developed even further with the, the Icon project. And you mentioned your dad was a church organist. The God Walks With Us has got that, a bit of that feel to it. Yeah, I think that uh, it was one of the first ideas I put forward to John at the time. He uh, he really liked it. I think that we threw... Well, when we'd actually done all the writing for Asia and, and stuff like that, and we, there were quite a few years in between that we didn't really communicate that much because I think John had been in America, he'd been working on solo stuff. So we kind of drifted apart at that point. And, uh, and I think when we, um, when we started talking again, this is going back to probably the beginning of the 2000s, it was almost like nothing had happened. You know, we, we just literally got down and started writing songs in exactly the way that we had done before and so it's quite an important song for me that because it it kind of uh cemented our writing partnership together again and uh obviously from that point we did more icon stuff and and then the asian Re- reunion yeah so it really you know i think it set the foundations for that uh you know for our rekindled writing relationship
That Asia reunion where the original lineup got back together and that fine album Amiga there. And there was a time that must have been quite interesting to yeah. getting everyone in, in one place and recording again. What was that like? It was great. I think that once we'd made that decision to go back together again, and that was it stemmed from, I think, from a meeting in early 2006. And uh, we'd done uh, the uh, icon album with John and he'd done a solo album I had a couple of tracks on that and I think everyone just turned around and said you know we didn't really give this a very good shot first time out let's you know everyone was free to do it and uh, and so we started off on, on uh, initially touring and then I think the touring went so well that we said well be nice to make some out you know make an album which was the Phoenix album which is the first album of the reunion yeah. package and then, uh, you know, it sort of carried on like that. And then we got to Omega. And the thing that strikes me particularly about this track is how great John's voice is because he starts off low and then he he sort of jumps up and he goes up to the next register. And it's everything that was great about John's voice. I think uh, by the time we got round to the reunion, John was singing better than ever. And uh, uh, obviously it's, you know, very sad that he yeah. passed away four years ago now. But... Uh, Certainly from my standpoint, I think that song evokes everything that was great about John, everything that was great about his vocal delivery. Thank you. 
There was no 
you mentioned getting that relationship with Steve Howe and being in, in Yes currently. The Fly From Here project was, was really interesting where you got a chance to go back to some of that material that you and Trevor offered for the group yeah. in the early 80s and, and kind of go back to that and basically record a, a fresh new album on it. Yeah, well, I think it was all down to the fact that they'd asked Trevor to produce the album. And uh, Trevor was quite adamant that Fly From Here was a kind of key track that they were doing. And Trevor was pretty adamant that, you know, at least I should play on it and because obviously I was a co-writer of it. Uh, and a couple of other songs we revisited. Uh, and so I think that's what really precipitated the other guys in Yes turn around and say, you know, well, you might as well rejoin, you know, because this is, this is your music. Mm. So on that point, I think that's going back to 2011 now, about this time 10 years ago, almost to the day probably. And it was ironic that it was the same time that I started working with Chris on the uh, DBA stuff. So right, yeah. the two things were really working in tandem at that point. I was over in LA uh, recording the, the Fly From Here album and uh, Chris was there as well. So we were kind of doing the two things side by side. Fly From Here, when you take a particular track like Sad Night at the Airfield Part 2, how much was the core songs or, or tracks that were demoed back in the early 80s and how many were just taking some of that template and extending and evolving that? What was the case in relation to that song? Well, I think that um, that song is, is very, very moving. You know, I think the the whole thing about the continuation of the airliners, you yeah. know, the, the imagery of this airfield deserted with an old sort of DB7 plane or whatever it was, you know, stuck by the side, sort of rotting away. It was kind of, uh, you know, very... Uh, was a evocative image that uh, that we had, and I think what Trevor wanted to do production-wise, he wanted to get them very yesified. So, kind of almost in the way that when we did the drama album, you know, we had the song called "I'm a Camera," yeah, and that became into the lens. So these things took on a whole a whole new meaning when when they become yesified. So it's great that uh, that one particularly is. I think it's a very moving piece. It's very powerful. It's very not doom laden, but it's got a lot of depth and stuff like that. So, yeah, that's the reason why I picked that one out because uh, I still I still get shivers when I hear that. Too late. 
be good to cover another Downs Braid Association album. I think this song is from Skyscraper Souls and uh, the, the track Tomorrow. Yeah. I think this is your third album. I assume by then you'd, you'd really evolved or got that chemistry together and the ways of working and you must have been very comfortable in that production process. Oh, it was definitely. I think that we uh, started, we really got to a great understanding then. I think that we felt that we weren't really limited by anything, and that's why I suppose we got more of a more of a progressive edge to it because it, uh, we discussed earlier about you know collection of songs, and I think that yeah, you know, skyscraper songs was the first time we've the whole track is like one side of vinyl. So uh, I think uh, we felt that we could sort of not be restricted by any having to come up with a, a group of songs. Uh, I think say tomorrow was something that I sent Chris and I thought, you know, he's probably not going to like this. It was in, it was in three, four, you know, it's, a, it's almost like a sort of uh, English waltz, you know. And, uh, <laughs> but I think that w- once, you know, once he got hold of it and then he started to do his whole thing with changing the keys but using the same uh, ideas and motif. Uh, and then we got David Longdon on it uh, to do yeah. the flute parts and the second vocal. You know, it really came alive as a piece, and I think that it just showed another uh, another aspect to the way that Chris and I work. Is that you know we're not restricted by having to do a song in bang 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 four four down the middle. It's uh, we stretch out and do things that are you know not necessarily the norm or complying to uh, conforming to normal yeah. songwriting regimes. Yeah, and so. Um other than the release of Hayless and Him's album, which I, th- I think uh, the uh, CD, DVD is out on the 5th of February and then the, the vinyl's coming about a month later. Yeah. I assume a, a man like you with so many different projects, I assume you, you're still recording and planning projects for, for the next year, I guess. Yeah, I'm still digging in there, you know. It's, uh, 
it's, it's a hobby as much as anything. You know, I like to, uh, you know, I'm fortunate that I've made a career out of it for so many years, but I still enjoy tinkering. You know, I still enjoy tinkering with the software, the, you know, the new developments and that sort of thing. Spend hours fine tuning my computers and that sort of thing and tinkering around on stuff. It, it, it's sort of a full, you know, it's a 100% occupation, really. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm always doing stuff. I, people send me files and say, could you put a bit of a solo on that or whatever. It's, I just enjoy doing it. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's always a challenge. Uh, but it's a different way of working. I think that, you know, the old days of working where everyone uh, sat in the studio together and threw peanuts at each other or whatever they did, you know. Um, yeah, it's... Uh, it's an interesting way of working, but uh, I think probably, you know, the way that it's gone in the last year, so many more people have, yeah. have looked into that as a way of uh, continuing to work and create. And, uh, you know, I think, thankfully, we're all still here and still doing what we can do. Absolutely. Jeff, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for your That's time. Okay. I wish you all the best with the release of uh, the Downsbraid Association album. Thank you. Thank you. Good to talk, Jason. See you later. Bye. Pale queen of diamond light, oceans attend to you. Long as you're in my sight. I'm ready to honor too And the silver light of the moon May light up our tears of sorrow But as long as she waxes and wanes I'll love you tomorrow Sovereign of all of my Joys at will, and if angels come to tear us apart, that void they will never fill. So we come and so we will go with all of life's ebb and flow. But as long as you're here in my heart, I'll love you tomorrow.
Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.